than Christ. Freedom from sin. Sin's bondage. Sin is destructive. It's destructive to every part of our lives. But when you're free, you're free to serve God. When you know that you're free from the obligation of your sin debtedness, you become empowered. And last week, I was able to use through a little bit of analogy that when the Holy Spirit abides inside you, you have the power to overcome sin. You do. You do. And we're going to continue that thought because uh, Wednesday night, we were able to kind of deepen it a little bit. So, but we're going to set, I'm going to set the context for something here. The 18th verse is what we're going to read first. For here the psalmist says, open thou mine eyes. I love that. We need God to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes. You know, Jesus' disciples, um, Jesus' disciples were with him for three and a half years, but their eyes were hidden from many of the truths that we now hold and understand. That did not happen until after his death. You remember, he even said it in John's gospel. He said, the things I share with you now, you cannot understand. But when the comforter has come, when the Spirit of God comes, he opens your understanding. Look at what he said, though. But that's not all the psalm. That's not all just even the verse. He said, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And he didn't say out of thy word. Okay, this, there's a difference here, and we're going to highlight that. So catch that. Out of thy law. Now we leap to the 97th verse. It says, Oh, how love I thy law. Once again, thy law, the 97th verse. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. So here the psalmist says, I'm thinking about the laws of God all day. And this is the passage in this psalm, if you're familiar with like the 105th, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And another passage that speaks about, I rejoice that thy word is one that findeth great spoil. It's in this psalm, Psalm 119. 163, for the last verse of scripture we read here today. The psalmist said, I hate and abhor lying. And every parent said, yes. Hmm. But thy law do I love. Come on, let's read that together. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. You know, can you say this? I didn't say the scriptures. I didn't say the, the, uh, the Bible. The, that's not what this psalm says. This psalm says, this author here be it David, I don't believe this is David, Psalm 119, I don't believe it is written by David. But the, the, the author here is uh, giving us the, 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 the expectation of his heart and the, the celebration of his heart is that he says he loves the law of God. He loves the precepts of the law of God. If you were to read the entire psalm, he loves the statutes. He loves the commandments. He prays for God to help him. And I, and I thought with them, I said, can you say that? Can you say, I love the law of God? Can you say, I mean, can you honestly? Because there's a lot of negative, uh, even within Christianity, towards the law of God. And I, I don't know if we have done a, a good job as pastors of teaching you the right appropriation and, uh, of the law in the uh, New Testament covenant that we walk in. And I hope that the Lord's going to open our eyes today. 
and you're going to see things a little differently. So let's pray. Father, our heart is set. We're after the Word of God. We're after truth. We're praying that you'll open our eyes, that you'll help us to learn today, God. Father, let, let me be able to communicate what's in my heart. And Father, let the people be ready to receive the Word of God. I know that it has a little value if it's not received, God. It, 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 the, the time that we give, unless the heart is prepared to receive the Word of God, then as uh, Paul said, I'm as tinkling brass and I'm a sounding cymbal. I'm just white noise in the background unless the heart is prepared to receive the Word of God. And I pray that this blessed church family is. And we thank you today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. And you can be seated. Now, this is an age-old question. And I'm going to, we're going to post just a few more scriptures here in a few moments, but not many here today. Um, but, and, but I'll read a couple of other passages at times that may not be uh, on the screen. But this is the, the age-old question, when I mean age-old, going back to uh, the formation, the early days of Christianity. We arrived at a part of our discussions on Wednesday night as we are following the ministry of the Apostle Paul, setting the stage to study his epistles. But we chose, rather, to follow his life in the book of Acts. And so as a prelude to studying the epistles. And we arrived at Acts 15, which is known to us as the account of the Jerusalem Council, when Paul and Barnabas are sent by the Antioch church back to Jerusalem to meet with both the apostles and elders to discuss whether or not Gentile Christians would be obligated to attempt to fulfill the, what we call as the law of Moses. Now, we call it the law of Moses, but it's not the law of Moses. Moses was just the mediator. It's the law of God. Is that right? And um, so in, that, in the discussions, that, 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 from that moment, it has historically been a point of contention from the church as, as to the involvement or the level of attempting to keep the law uh, within the Christian community. Now, so I had pinned a question on the, on the marker board that evening that said, is a Christian required to keep the law of Moses? And I did so uh, to just simply generate and spark conversation, which it did, um, because I anticipated a common answer. This is a common answer that's typically given. I've quoted this, spoke it many times myself. We are not under law, but under grace. Is that right? And, uh, but now with this, let me clarify and bring you deeper into this. That's a common answer because it is, uh, it is found in the Scriptures, the New Testament. But just a little background, the actual phrase, three words, under the law, appears ten times in the New Testament epistles or in the New Testament. But the exact phrase appears twice in the same context in Romans, the sixth chapter, the 14th and the 15th verses. And I think they're going to show those. They're there already. They're faster than I am. It says here, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, most oftentimes, it seems, and in our modern culture in America today, the application of I'm not under the law is typically our cop-out for an unholy lifestyle. All right, let me say that again. I didn't get much of a response. Typically, when we say, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, we say that to accommodate 
or to be a cop-out for a lifestyle of poor choices that can be sinful choices as well. But the author here, uh, Paul, is simply saying we're not under law, we're under grace. So go back why he made that statement. Sin does not have dominion over us. We're not bound to sin any longer. We're not bound to the sin debtedness of Adam, but nor are we also bound to fulfill the desire to sin which is contained in our flesh because we're under grace. Under grace brought us into this fellowship with the Father whereby we receive the Holy Spirit, which I've alluded to the last two weeks and thus the continued reason for me to share this message with you today. Masked a little bit early, un unveiled here at the, uh, at the end. Let's read the 15th verse if we can for just a moment. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Paul answers his own question with a strong two words, God forbid. We don't simply sin because we are under grace in that sense that we don't immediately receive the judgment that might have been meted out to a Hebrew who was caught in adultery or caught in idolatry or caught in witchcraft who might suffer an immediate stoning as a result of being judged outside the city gates. So we, we, don't, we don't sin because we don't receive that immediate judgment. God forbid, he says, correct? Right, and so now let's pick this up just a moment. So again, this closer examination reveals that many of the moral laws concerning the law, we're talking about the law for a few moments. I think we have too much negativity in the Christian church about the law. And I'm going to combat that just a little bit today. Stay with me. I'm going to take you on a journey that I think you'll enjoy if you'll stay with me. So this closer examination reveals that many of the moral laws out of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law wasn't just moral laws. There were civil laws. There were laws related to personal hygiene, things of that nature. But many of the moral laws, when you start quoting, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Did you know many of the moral laws of the Old Testament are replicated word for word in the New Testament epistles? So many times we say, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, so I don't have to do some of the things that, you know, some of the things that we think about when we think about the Mosaic Law. Does that mean that you can be an adulterer? Does that mean that, that you can be a fornicator? Absolutely not. God forbid. Come on, God forbid. And so we could, we could go on lying and stealing, idolatry, those things, they're condemned in both covenants as sinful behavior. So, so what's the difference? I pinned a question, and then I asked again, do we keep it or not? Well, before we get to that and answer those two questions, we got to kind of go back and say, well, what is the law? Let's see if we can define it just a little bit more. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's the Torah. The word law is uh, translated from, in the original language, the Torah. So when you hear a, a, uh, an Orthodox Jew speak about the Torah, he's actually just referencing the law, and that is the five books of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament uh, that, that takes us from Genesis through Deuteronomy, including Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Now, with this, that's distinguished in Judaism, both historically and modern day, from the writings, which are often referred to as the Psalms and the Prophets. And I've shown you the, distinguish, uh, the, the distinguishment of that before. Let me give you an example. Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, when he did pray that God would open the eyes of his disciples, he said, Lord, open their eyes that they might understand all that's been written in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. 
And so Judaism divided the old covenant, the 30, what we call the 39 books. They didn't have 39. I think they have about 24 because many of their books are consolidated. Writings is one book to them, but it might be six or seven or eight books that you and I are familiar with, like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, those kind of things. And so it's distinguished from those. It includes, again, the the books of Moses, those five books, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy. No, that's out of order. That includes the history and the beginnings of mankind. I tell you, I just believe the Word of God. God was there in the beginning. So so I, I believe the book literally. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I just believe that just like it was written. And so uh, in that context, uh, so, so we have uh, in the, 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 the book of the law, we have a detailed account of God's covenant with a man by the name of Abraham, which was the beginning of the Jewish people. And we have a detailed account of the exodus from Egypt, which was the birth of a nation. And we have the wanderings in the wilderness. We also have a detailed, especially in the book of Leviticus, of the sacrificial system that God gave Israel that was intended by God to produce annual atonement, not eternal atonement. See, I walk in eternal atonement today. Israel walked in annual atonement. Their sins were rolled back. That's why there was a sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement year after year after year because it did not disannul. But I thank God. Well, I'll just keep on going. Um, Intended by God was to... Here's a distinguishment. In the law, Exodus 19, 5 and 6 and Deuteronomy 7 and 6, especially in that passage in, in Exodus 19, that's when the law was given. Mount Sinai, the children of Israel been brought to the base of the mountain where God had first appeared to Moses weeks and perhaps months uh, earlier when the bush burned but was not consumed. God brought the children of Israel after their deliverance from Egyptian bondage back to the base of the mountain. And God gave strict instructions to sanctify yourselves, to keep yourselves from all unholy activity. And on the third day, God himself would come down. The glory of God appeared on the mountain. The mountain burned with fire but was not consumed. There was smoke billowing and there was lightnings and thunderings and the voice of God was heard. Later when Moses came down from the mountain carrying two tablets of stone under his arm that the Bible plainly says was pinned by the finger of God. That means Moses carried two tablets but he did not carry a hammer or a chisel with him. Hello? The finger of God wrote on the tablet of stone the Ten Commandments. The voice that was heard was echoed the Ten Commandments to validate the doctrine that Moses would later share as known as the law. Because God said, I'm going to give you these words, the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to give you words that are in the tenor or in agreement with these words, which we get as the rest of the law, Correct? It's a powerful moment in human history because all of mankind was worshiping a God or a plurality of gods. But how many know there is no God but our God, right? Yahweh God, the God of heaven. 
And so in that moment, God was showing that their gods were idols, stone, wood, gold, silver. But God said, I'm the invisible God, the living God, the creator of mankind. This was not done in a corner. It was done at the base of a giant mountain so that two million men, women, boys and girls could see and hear. And they could in that moment say, you know what? That's God right there. That's God. Not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of the Canaanites, but that God. Now, with this, let's go a little farther. I love this. I love seeing the picture come together. Are y'all with me out there? And so when that happened, God told Israel, he said, you're going to be my special people. You're going to be my children. This is in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7. He said, if you follow my laws... Is that right? If you follow my laws, he said, then you're going to be my people because when you follow the laws of God, that's what will distinguish you from the people that are around you, from the cultures. And in this passage, I want to ask you this. So eventually God intended them to be, the children of Israel to be a light to the nations. So before I even take it farther into this, let me say this. Can you say with the psalmist that you love the law of the Lord? I can't. I can say it. I've looked at it closely enough. Even though I'm not bound to walk in all of the obligations of the Mosaic law, I understand that. I can still say today, I love thy law. God, let me understand your precepts. Open my eyes. I'll show you more why what's motivated me today. The law of Moses or the law of God, it protected the people of Israel from the practices of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Right, let's go, let me, let me, the civil practices, the moral practices, the personal hygiene practices, and the religious practices of both the Egyptians from where they came out and the Canaanites where they were going. Now, I have uh, shown you this before, but put it on the screen for me, Phil, if you would. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. I just want you to read this. Taken exactly from the Torah, the law of Moses. And the Lord God spoke unto Moses, saying, look at this, speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, I am the Lord your God. He's the Lord our God, isn't he? After the doings. Now look at this. This is his exhortation to Israel. After the doings of the land of Egypt wherein you dwelt, because you dwelt there for 400 years, and you picked up many of their mannerisms and their habits and their moralities and, and, their, uh, and how they do life. He said, you've picked that up, but where I'm going to take you, you can't do like the people that you used to live around. He said, I'm going to take you into a land that's inhabited by the Canaanites, Seven nations possessed the promised land, the Canaanite tribes, the Amorites especially. And he said, you can't do what they're doing either. He said, I'm gonna, he said you, you don't do that. He said, neither shall you walk in their ordinances. So don't live life like the Egyptians and don't live life like the, like the Canaanites. And you say, Pastor, that's, that's all strange. And, well, do you know what Paul said it in Ephesians chapter number 4, New Testament epistle? He said, don't walk like the other Gentiles walk. That's, he was, and I know in the back of his mind, when, when, when he was writing that to the Ephesians, that he taught them this dynamic doctrine of grace. He also said, don't live life like the Gentiles, which means the other nations. That's what the word Gentiles means, the nations. Don't live life like the Egyptians and don't live life like the Canaanites. Look at the fourth verse. He said, you shall obey my judgments. 
Keep my ordinances. Walk therein. I'm the Lord your God. Fifth verse. I love it. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. And if a man does this, he's going to live in them because I'm the Lord. God's laws will protect you. God's laws will help you. Let me, can I contrast a few things for you today? I think you'll enjoy this. I want to show you, I'm going to show you something in a moment on the value of the law. But if you don't value it enough in yourself, then when I make this dynamic spiritual principle in a few moments, then you won't understand the heaviness associated with it. So I want you to see a contrast of the Egyptians and the Canaanites for just a moment. Now, when we think about the Canaanites, we think about their sacrificial system, whereas they sacrificed oftentimes their own children in the fire. The Canaanites practiced child sacrifice to Molech in order to satisfy their pagan deity. God prohibited Israel from that type of sacrifice. He even said, it never even entered into my mind to ask you to give me your child and burn it in the fire. So there's a, a stark contrast between the two. But it goes so much farther than this, both in the Canaanites and the Egyptians. So let me just highlight some things about the Mosaic Law. Before you just throw away the law and say, well, it doesn't have any value because I'm under grace. Well, let's think about childbirth. Oh, wow. It's real quiet in here. Let's just go, oh, where's Pastor Brown going with this? Did you know that the scriptures spoke about childbirth? And, and for, the, for, for, the, for the aid of the woman. The cultures of old have, have been historically children and mothers are lost, right? In childbirth, not handled appropriately. But look at this real quickly. Um, after the birth of a male child, a woman, according to the law, was considered unclean for seven days. And then she continued in a state of purification for 33 days. Not sinful, unclean there's difference between sin and being unclean right now listen to this following the birth of a female child the mother was considered unclean for 14 days and her purification period was for 66 days and that was not because god was distinguishing male and female like he diminished a girl or child versus a male child if you look at this very carefully by declaring a woman who had just given birth unclean the biblical health laws required whoever touched the new mother to wash and to avoid immediate contact with other people a practice listen to that rain you're already trapped in the building You are trapped, so just go with this, okay? (laughs) Work with me, people. A practice designed to prevent the spread of diseases such as childbirth fever, which claimed untold lives throughout history. It was not until the mid-1800s that an an Austrian physician recognized that the spread of childbirth fever could be prevented if birth attendants washed after a delivery. So 1800, so just 200 years ago, Modern medicine finally discovered what God gave. Come on, what God gave 4,000 years ago to protect his people. Let's go farther. There are even more benefits in these instructions. While a new mother was unclean for 7 to 14 days, she was free from the duties of cooking and doing ordinary housework. Ladies, if ever there was a moment when I ought to get a good amen out of you, Jesus of Nazareth, that's when it ought to be said. She was free, given time to regain her strength from delivering that baby. During her purification period, she remained in semi-isolation. Thus, she avoided crowds 
and contact with disease germs that could harm her or her newborn baby. She was not required to travel to the place of worship to make the offering until the end of her purification period, allowing her to regain her strength. The longer period for female babies was not due to male chauvinist bias. Even today, female babies often have lower birth weights and higher mortality rates. So this longer period at home with the mother was meant to give them a better start in life. Come on, God is an awesome God. I can say with the psalmist, thank God for the law of God. Thank God for the things that we're just now learning that God gave thousands of years ago, literally thousands of years ago. The Bible instructed the male babies were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Modern scientific studies have shown that the blood clotting mechanism in a baby is not fully developed until the eighth day. And so it was not wise to do a surgical procedure earlier because of threat of hemorrhage. Some, some people, uh, well, let me just, I got to move on. There's so much here. I got to go. Let's go on a little bit further. Sanitary laws. Now, this is what we got to talking about on Wednesday night. Let's go a little bit farther. In the Mosaic law, porous vessels that came into contact with dead animals were to be broken. Why? Come on. How did anybody in the desert of the Middle East 4,000 years ago know? How did anybody know that without modern technology and discoveries of, of, with my, uh, microscopes to, to find diseases and germs living and decaying flesh? How did anybody know? They didn't wash in running water until God got, gave Moses the revelation, you handle something unclean, go wash your hands. Not in a pool but in running water, in running water. People showing signs of sicknesses were to be isolated. People were to wash after having sex. Tattoos and cuttings on the flesh were also forbidden for reasons that might include the, the contracting of, the, of disease. Um, we learned that human waste were to be buried. Now, that was, our, that was our great point that we made Wednesday night. So those of you that don't come on Wednesday night, you don't know the things that we're talking about here on Wednesday night. But did you know in Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter, God told Israel, God told Israel, he said, if you're outside, he said, and you got to go relieve yourself, don't just leave it laying on the ground. You say, now that sounds to us, we can't fathom that. But you know, even today, third world countries still don't apply those principles and there'll be feces, you know, an open sanitation filling the air Hello? Penetrating into their water sources, right? But God, in his wisdom, said, you've got to camp, put your bathroom outside the camp, and then dig a hole and bury it. And I went ahead and added this in because Deuteronomy does say, God says, I'm the Lord thy God that walketh among you. And I'm going to give you a New Testament, Lee Brown paraphrase of that. God said, I don't want to be stepping in your stuff, right? So bury it. Moral laws. How many know there are moral laws in the law of Moses? That thing you're trying, that you look at as evil and taboo. There were moral laws to protect people, right? Moral laws that forbade open promiscuity. Hello? Sexually transmitted diseases bring suffering, disfigurement, infertility, and death. But in God's mosaic or in the, in the law of Moses, it was a relationship between one man and one woman. Let's go down a little bit farther. 
sexually active homosexual men to this day have a much shorter lifespan than the average man and a much higher risk of contracting and dying from a serious disease. But the Mosaic law or the law of Moses forbade it. Why? Not because God is holding back anything from his children, but because he's preventing, preventing us, prevention. Uh, a, a medical historian, Ralph Major, described Moses as the greatest sanitary engineer that the world has ever seen because Moses recognized the great principle that the prevention of disease is usually simpler and invariably more far-reaching than the cure of a disease. He writes, his doctrines in the book of Leviticus could be summed up by the objects of sanitation today. Pure food, pure water, pure air, pure bodies, and pure dwellings. All by the, by the invisible wisdom of God, given to us by the word of God, that if we heed it and receive it, it produces a life. And God said, if you obey this to the children of Israel, you'll live. Let me go a little bit farther. One last thing on that. And then I'll get, I could just, thy servant loveth thy law today. Come on. Now look at this. I shared this a little bit, but I, I researched it a little farther. You know, they came out of Egypt, but they were going into the Canaan's land, Correct. Egyptians have, it's well known that they, uh, that they have a well, they had a well-organized medical system, the Egyptians, for, for thousands of years. But nevertheless, the cures they prescribed weren't always up to snuff. And, and this is information uh, in, in some of their own papyrus writings and such that was found uh, uh, using some of their medicinal purposes. Their cures that they used included lizard blood, dead mice, Mud and moldy bread were all used as topical ointments and dressings. Now, listen to this one. You know, every now and then I talk about the old spice. Hello? Well, the Egyptians had, in order to cure impaired libido in a woman, that they would be dosed with horse saliva. I'm going to stick with the old spice. <laughs> I think that will be more readily received. Most disgusting. Come on, people. That's funny right there. <laughs> Most disgusting of all, Egyptian physicians use human and animal excrement as a cure-all remedy for diseases. Donkey, dog, gazelle, fly dung, and I read another article, cat dung, were all celebrated for their healing properties. So God brought Israel out and said, I'm going to give you a law that if you obey this law, I'll take sickness away from the midst of you, right? Because you'll live a clean, holy life and lifestyle and you won't have to take mice dung to get over your ailment. I suppose the Egyptians had this mechanism. You go there, you have an earache to the Egyptian doctor. The doctor says, I'm going to give you uh, uh, a solution that includes lizard dung, mice dung, cat dung, and when you eat that, you'll forget all about your here. <laughs> Is that right? I know I would after I spent the next three weeks throwing up. So the law, let's go farther, and I, I got to hurry because I got to take you to the really important stuff. The law was intended to prevent a theocracy. Rather, they were to be a nation of priests and elders. It was, to a degree, a constitutional republic. Did you know that? It was a constitutional republic. There was the constitution, and the people would elect leaders, elders, that would represent them. 
Let's go a little bit farther. Taxes were capped at 10%. Oh, my gosh. Taxes were capped at 10%. That means you could keep 90% of what you earned. We need to go back to the Mosaic Law in America. <laughs> in that sense. Many of America's laws were found, found their root in the law. Such as, did you know the bankruptcy provision that we have? Why does it attach seven years to it? Follow on, because God had a seven-year release. And then he had a 50-year release that he gave the children of Israel. How about the monitoring of judges that warned of extortion and bribery? How about protection for the family unit, fostering both national and individual worship to the one true God? And even this, think about the law. If you could say this to me, I love the law. When Jesus himself faced Satan in his personal temptation after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and he was hungry and he was tired and he was frustrated, that's when the enemy comes to you. When you're at your weakest point physically, he comes to tempt you. Jesus warded off the devil and then he eventually drove him away. But he didn't drive him away by quoting the book of Ephesians. He didn't drive him away by quoting the book of 1 Corinthians or even the letter to the Romans whom Martin Luther called the crown prince or the crown jewel of all scripture. No, he quoted the book of Deuteronomy. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy and that's why I'm telling you there's power in the word of God, power in the life of God and power in the law of God. And he drove the devil away from him by quoting the law of what we call the law of Moses. And so, church family, with all this positive, is there some negatives? Yes. Even though the New Testament apostles spoke very highly of the law, here's what they said. They said the law is holy. They said, did you know this? When Paul said all scripture is God breathed, he was referring to the law and the prophets. Is that right? Let's go a little farther. The law is good, Paul writes. James called it the perfect law of liberty. But they also highlighted its weakness. Romans 8 says it was weak through the flesh. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says the letter will kill. 2 Corinthians 3 and 7 says it's an administration of death. Galatians 4 and 9 calls it a weak and beggarly element. So here, with all the positives that I highlighted to you, the reason why I highlighted the positives, because then when you understand Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, you will understand what you've been redeemed from and delivered to. Right? And if you don't look at it and study it, you won't see its virtue, but you won't see its weakness. So sometimes we're focused so on its weakness that we don't see its virtue. There is virtue in it. The law is good if a man will use it lawfully, Paul writes. But the weakness of the law seems to be this. Stay with me. I've got just a few more things that I'm going to close. Seems to be man's car carnal man's inability to keep it. That was the weakness of the law. Man just couldn't seem to keep it. Man could not produce righteousness by it. That's the shallowness of it. You, you would forever be trying to do it and always be incomplete. You'd always be trying to walk in accordance to it only to discover that you've breached it in an area, right? And you would always be condemned. But thus, let's read on farther. Paul summarizes this, justification and righteousness. How many know those are two very important uh, Christian principles? Justification, righteousness, right? We're justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. It's clearly written all throughout the New Testament. Is that right? But not only are we justified, but we're made righteous. Not by our own effort. Not by attempting to ascribe to the law, but by what? By faith in Jesus. 
Jesus met the righteous requirement of the law, and we're complete in him. Is that right? So God looks at us not as unrighteous. He looks at us as righteous because he looks at us through the lens of his son. When he sees us, he sees us through his son. He sees us through his death, burial, and resurrection and the blood that was applied to the cross. And therefore, God can declare us righteous because not that we have earned it, not because we have fulfilled all 613 requirements of the law. No, but because we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. That's the core doctrines of the Bible, right? The purpose of the law was twofold. Here's the purpose. Number one, to reveal sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Without the law, I wouldn't know that fornication is sinful. I wouldn't know that stealing is sinful. I wouldn't know that lying or cursing or speaking evil things is sinful. But the law comes to identify sinful behavior. And it's necessary to create true conviction. True conviction comes when we realize we've broken the law. Without it, I would continue in sin without any knowledge that I was a sinner. But when the law comes, then then I realize I've sinned against God. Number two, it brings us to the need for a redeemer, which is to Christ. It leaves me exasperated. Paul said it brings us to a schoolmaster or that law was our schoolmaster. It brings us to Christ. So listen to this. I only have one more page of notes because I'm bringing you to the, to the highlight of the apex of the sermon. The law's types and shadows pointed us to Jesus Christ. Our inability to keep the law created within us, exasperation and frustration and brought us to the place where we said, God, I got to have a redeemer. And when I found my redemption, I didn't find it in the blood of a bullock or a goat that was presented by the Mosaic law. I found it in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And his blood washed away all my sin. Come on, somebody. It wasn't rolling it back for another year, waiting on another sacrifice. This man offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Come on, somebody. Our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Right? God's redeemed us. That's why sin does not have dominion over me. Because I'm not under a legal requirement and there's not a continual application of another sacrifice. One sacrifice satisfied the sin debt. Now I'm in no condemnation. I'm free from sin guiltiness because God's cleansed me and now I can live a holy life pleasing unto God. Amen? Now listen, when Israel was brought into the covenant with God, he gave them the law. And you say, Pastor, so when we come into covenant with God, what does he give me? Here's the apex of the sermon. Don't miss it. When you come into covenant with God, he doesn't give you the law. He gives you his spirit. And that's the distinguishment between the two covenants. That the children of Israel were given the law that they would fail in their attempt to keep. But God breathes in you the breath of life, the Holy Spirit. And now inside you is the living pneuma, the living spirit of God. And you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are washed away. All things are made new in Christ. And you're not bound under the obligation of sin. Paul said the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Did you know on the day that God gave the Mosaic law, 3,000 people died. But on the day God gave the Spirit, 3,000 people were born into the kingdom of God. The letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. 
See, I didn't come to the day preaching. I preached about the law, but I'm not standing here in the strength of the law. I'm standing here in the strength of the life that I have in Christ Jesus. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm able to serve God with a clear conscience, with joy in my heart today. I'm able to read the law, understand the law, ask God to open my eyes, knowing that I've already sinned against God, but my sin debt has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can then say, God, so God, I ask that you help me to keep the moral principles of the law by the Holy Spirit who dwells on the inside of me. The law was written on stone, but God now writes on our heart by his spirit. As Daryl joins me on the platform today to close at 12.03, Paul summarizes, and all I'm doing, church family, is skimming the surface of deep spiritual truths. Paul says, walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Listen to this. Walk after the spirit. Galatians says, be led by the spirit. Galatians 4 says, the spirit cries, father, father in your heart. Did you know you can commune with this God that the children of Israel, did you know when the, the, the law was given? Listen, when the law was given, not only did 3,000 die because of their actions, but you know what they did? They backed away in fear. They did. Read the text. In the text, they said, Moses, Moses, we, 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 can't, we, can't, we can't look. We, we can't approach God. Moses, you go for us. Right? That's what happened. We, we, we recognize God. We know that is God, but we're afraid of God. That's what the knowledge of the law brought. Fear, part of it was reverence, that's good. But when the Spirit comes in, it's Father. It's not just this judgmental God on Mount Sinai and our perception of this judgment God, but it's a loving Father who sent His Spirit into our hearts. And now we are identified as children of the Most High God. And now we walk and live a life that's pleasing to Him. And we even keep many times the spirit of the law. Let me give you an example. What's the spirit of the law? Jesus said, what's the greatest commandments? One man quoted back and he said, that's right. The whole law hangs on this. What was that? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus summarized it. The things we didn't think we used to could keep, which was the law, now the Holy Spirit dwelling in us empowers us to live a holy life before God. I've been saying for several weeks now, you don't have to be an adulterer, fornicator, angry man, bound to drugs. Hello? On and on. Thank you for that testimony right there. Those are men crying out whom God has set free. Whom that the Son is set free is free indeed. You don't have to be. Right? You don't have to. You're not bound. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. So sin doesn't dominate your life. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you still are able to keep many of the precepts and principles that produce holy living. I showed you today adhering to the law. 
and I don't mean like seeking religion or seeking righteousness. If you seek righteousness under the law, you're going to fail. But if you use the law and use it lawfully, I tell you, you'll make better decisions. You'll judge your diet, your interactions with people. You'll make good decisions before God. You'll shun from things that you know produce negative consequences. So the law is good if you use it lawfully. It will fail if you try to be made righteous through it. Is that right? But the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you gives you an ability to keep. I'm going to summarize and close with these words, reading just four verses of Romans chapter number 8. Please listen as I close today. Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Read it with me. We're closing. It's five after. To them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Is that right? For what the law could not do. The law could do a lot of good things. And I highlighted some of those things. Important things. Is that right? But it was weak. In that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh on the cross. There's where the judgment of God is. The judgment of God is not in stones to stone people who have sinned outside the city gate. The judgment of God was contained to Jesus' death on the cross. And now, look at this, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So now, you know what? You can live and walk differently. Won't you stand up with me today? Can y'all say that with me? You can live and walk differently. You can. You can be an entirely different person because you are. If the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside you, you're an entirely different person than you used to be. You're not under an obligation. You're under an empowerment to live a holy life before God by his Holy Spirit. So let's pray and let's close today in prayer.